I like to think about metabolic dysfunction in three different phases. So the first phase is generally silent. This could go on for years, actually, and you have no idea that it's happening. The next phase is usually when it's first detected in a medical setting. So this is where someone may be diagnosed with a chronic disease like high blood pressure or diabetes or hyperlipidemia or fatty liver. The person might not actually feel different, but they may have these diagnoses and they may be on medications that help keep them, quote unquote, under control. And then the third phase is really what we're all trying to avoid, which is a significant impairment or even death from things like strokes, heart attacks, limb or vision loss, and kidney failure. And these are all on a continuum. And the earlier you can catch them, the more likely you're going to be able to actually reverse the process. Unfortunately, our healthcare system tends to identify metabolic dysfunction years after it's already started or the train has really already left the station. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché-Urcuyo, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, my husband, Dr. Danny, and I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is one of our Pursuing Health pearls. In medicine, we refer to clinical pearls as small bits of freestanding information relevant to clinical practice, usually based on experience. Pursuing Health Pearls are shorter episodes in which Danny and I offer you succinct, high-yield info on common health conditions or other topics. We do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome back, everybody, to Pursuing Health Pearls. Welcome back. We are excited for this episode because we're going to be building on our last edition of the Pearls, and we're going to go into more detail about how metabolic dysfunction develops and how we can assess whether someone is metabolically healthy or not. But before we dive in, we want to remind you that we are committed to not having sponsors on the show. In order to keep doing what we're doing, we need your support. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can support us by going to pursuing-health.com slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber for as little as $4.99 a month. And not only will you be supporting us and our ability to keep putting out podcast content like this, but you will also get access to our workout programs, exclusive discount codes, and live Q&A sessions that we do every single month with our subscribers. So again, if you are able to, we would greatly appreciate your support. Please head to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber. All righty, let's get started. So the last Pearls episode, we talked about how only 12.2% of our population is optimally metabolically healthy. Which is just a scary statistic, right? It is. Can you imagine? 88% of our population is not metabolically healthy. We're in bad shape as a country. <laughs> We also highlighted how a lot of metabolic dysfunction goes undiagnosed and can even exist in those with normal weight. But how do we define good metabolic health? And here we define it as a state of being where biochemical processes in our body that regulate blood sugar and lipids are normal. Metabolic dysfunction, on the other hand, has many different definitions, but they all involve blood sugar problems or abnormal blood sugar, abnormal lipid regulation, and systemic inflammation. 
The reasons we care so much about metabolic dysfunction is because if left unaddressed for years, it can ultimately lead to a range of common health conditions and causes of death, such as diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and peripheral artery disease. Today, we're going to cover how metabolic dysfunction develops, what's actually going on in our bodies that sets the stage for chronic disease, what tests allow us to pick this up early, and what we can do to avoid becoming metabolically ill. All right. So it's a lot to go through. (laughs) Um, Just to start off with, um, I like to think about metabolic dysfunction in three different phases. So the first phase is generally silent. Sorry. (laughs) This could go on for years, actually, and you have no idea that it's happening. Mm -hmm. The next phase is usually when it's first detected in a medical setting. So this is where someone may be diagnosed with a chronic disease like high blood pressure or diabetes or hyperlipidemia or fatty liver. The person might not actually feel different, um, but they may have these diagnoses and they may be on medications that help keep them, quote unquote, under control. And then the third phase is really what we're all trying to avoid, which is a significant impairment or even death from things like strokes, heart attacks, limb or vision loss and kidney failure. And these are all on a continuum. And the earlier you can catch them, the more likely you're going to be able to actually reverse the process. Unfortunately, our healthcare system tends to identify metabolic dysfunction years after it's already started or the train has really already left the station. Yeah. So how metabolic dysfunction manifests depends a lot on the person too and their unique genetic makeup and their environmental exposures. And the underlying process of abnormal glucose and lipid processing and inflammation are the same, but in one person, it may lead to high blood pressure. In another, it may lead to type 2 diabetes, and in a third, it may end up causing PCOS. But the problems don't stop there. Other manifestations of these underlying problems may be fatty liver disease, cholesterol problems, cardiovascular disease, arthritis, cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, and even depression. Yep. So I think we can all agree that that's not something we want. We don't want metabolic dysfunction. I definitely don't. And I definitely don't want that for anyone that I care about or take care of. Absolutely. So let's talk about how it's diagnosed so we can pick this up early and do something about it. There are many different signs and symptoms of metabolic dysfunction, which give us an idea Um, which give us an idea that it's present. So high blood pressure, obesity, cholesterol problems, inflammation, some of the things we mentioned previously. And in a sense, there's really not one test that we can do to tell us that you do have metabolic dysfunction. We have to look at the different downstream effects of metabolic dysfunction and measure those to get an idea if it's actually there. It's kind of like looking at a house or looking inside of a house through windows. And each of those windows is one of those metabolic markers, blood pressure, cholesterol, blood sugar. And by looking at each individual window or looking through each individual window, we can get a sense of what's going on inside or going on inside the body and seeing if there is metabolic dysfunction. Yeah. So some of these indicators have actually been grouped together in diagnoses or syndromes. And one of those is metabolic syndrome. So metabolic syndrome is a grouping of five of these different risk factors that when they're present, raise the risk of heart disease and other health problems like diabetes or stroke later on in life. You can have any one of these risk factors by itself, but they tend to occur together, which is no surprise because they all have that same underlying cause. And you have to have three of these risk factors in order to be officially diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. So the five risk factors are, number one, a waist measurement of 35 inches or more for women or 40 inches or more for men. Number two is triglycerides elevated above 150 milligrams per deciliter or being on a medicine to treat high triglycerides. Number three is HDL cholesterol, which is that otherwise known often as good cholesterol. 
a low level of less than 50 milligrams per deciliter for women or less than 40 for men or being on medicine to treat low HDL cholesterol. The fourth is blood pressure of over 130 systolic or that top number, over 85 diastolic or that bottom number or higher, or being on a medicine to treat high blood pressure. And then the fifth is a fasting blood sugar level of 100 milligrams per deciliter or higher or being on a medicine that treats high blood sugar. So the prevalence of metabolic syndrome is very high in the United States. About 24% of U.S. adults have metabolic syndrome. That means they've met three of those criteria we just described. And 43% of adults older than 60 have met the criteria for metabolic syndrome. And then if we look at that number that we talked about earlier um, of optimally metabolically healthy individuals, where only 12.2% of American adults have optimal metabolic optimal metabolic health. It's a tongue twister, meaning they have zero of those five criteria. And actually in that study, they were even more stringent on the blood pressure criteria. So they used a blood pressure cutoff of less than 120 over 80, which is actually considered normal or optimal blood pressure. These metabolic risk factors we mentioned just now have discrete cutoffs. So, right, we talked about a blood pressure cutoff. We talked about a blood sugar cutoff. But, of course, our body doesn't act that way, right? Mm -hmm. So, the difference between a blood sugar of 99 and a blood sugar of 100 and that 100 you meet the criteria of metabolic syndrome or meet (laughs) one of the criteria is probably not that different, right? Right. So, keep this in mind as we talk about metabolic risk factors. Definitely. All right. So we've talked about how metabolic dysfunction is characterized by the inability of the body to process glucose and lipids properly, which are two of our main forms of energy, as well as this chronic low-grade inflammation. So now let's talk about what exactly causes the process of normal metabolism to become dysfunctional. In simplest terms, the process all starts with increased carbohydrate consumption. So we have these increased carbohydrates that we consume. It increases our blood sugar, um, the blood sugar circulating in our bloodstream, and a storage hormone called insulin is released so that we can move that blood sugar to where it needs to go. Insulin signals uh, provides a signal to those cells to take up that blood sugar and drives it primarily into muscles, fat cells, and the liver where it can be used later as energy. And when there's excess glucose or excess sugar and the muscles are full, then the insulin directs that glucose to be stored in fat cells as fat. And over time, this can lead to increased body fat or obesity. And in particular, increased fat cells in our abdomen around our organs is called visceral adiposity. This is what contributes to increased abdominal circumference that we talked about, one of those hallmarks of metabolic syndrome. And this visceral fat or belly fat contains fat tissue that's especially metabolically active, and it releases more than 50 different molecules called adipocytokines. And these molecules lead to increased inflammation and also contribute to insulin resistance, which we're going to talk about more in just a moment. So let's put all of this together. Um, it's time to put on our thinking caps. It might be a little bit of a lot. It might be a lot of information, really. Yeah, stick you, with us. You might have to rewind it, read the blog post, get a little bit more detail on things. But this is important go. stuff and it stuff is that was not ever even taught to us in such simple terms right. in our medical training. It was kind of taught a little bit in a piecemeal fashion, but only until I think recently we were able to put all the pieces together. So right. we hope you benefit from that. So let's start with sugar. So the level of blood sugar. Um, the level of sugar in our blood is tightly regulated by insulin and other hormones because very high and very low levels of blood sugar can be quite dangerous. If we have continued high levels of carbohydrate intake and as a result, high blood sugar, large amounts of insulin are required to keep our blood sugar normal and to move that blood sugar into our tissues. Eventually, this can lead to a process called insulin resistance where our cells stop responding to insulin as well. 
And there are other factors that play a role in insulin resistance too. And they can make a person more or less susceptible. So for example, the person's genetics and how those interact with their environment, sleep deprivation we know can contribute to insulin resistance, inactivity, exposure to certain toxins and stress. All these things can contribute to increased blood sugar levels and or insulin resistance. Now, insulin resistance first occurs in the muscle, which then drives excess glucose or sugar to the liver. The liver then uses this excess blood sugar for increased production of VLDL, a type of transport uh, molecule for lipids, as well as elevated blood triglycerides and decreased HDL. And this is why elevated triglycerides and low HDL are the hallmark or a hallmark of metabolic syndrome. The fat cells then become insulin resistant too. And because they're not picking up the signal from insulin to store energy as well, they start behaving as if they're starving and they start breaking down stored fat. And as a result, they release that fat into the bloodstream and deliver it to the liver where the liver then uses it to make even more glucose, further contributing to the problem of high blood sugar. And in the end, all of these key insulin responsive tissues, our liver, our skeletal muscle, and our fat tissue become insulin resistant. And the body has to use higher and higher levels of insulin in order to break through that resistance and get the sugar out of the bloodstream and stored in those cells. This means that there's a high circulating level of insulin in the bloodstream, which is called hyperinsulinemia. And hyperinsulinemia leads to increased production of inflammatory markers, further leading to a state of systemic inflammation that characterizes metabolic syndrome. Now, insulin is normally produced in a part of the pancreas, um, in pancreatic cells called beta cells. Eventually, the pancreas gets so tired because it has to produce so much insulin to keep up with the high blood sugar that these cells actually start to die off. And the end result is that less insulin is produced and blood sugar can't be stored in the tissues efficiently. The concentration of blood glucose increases and the end result is a metabolic catastrophe known as diabetes. And this whole process is why one of the criteria for metabolic syndrome is elevated blood sugar. Now, let's just take note here that a lot has happened up until this point before the blood sugar is even elevated, which is usually the way that prediabetes or diabetes is initially detected. So this process of metabolic dysfunction can be taking place usually for many years before it might be apparent to you or to your doctor. Now, let's get back to the story. So high circulating levels of glucose and insulin coupled with that systemic inflammation can also contribute to elevated blood pressure. Insulin resistance can lead to high blood pressure by increasing oxidative stress, increasing production of chemicals that cause blood vessels to constrict and reducing the chemicals that cause blood vessels to relax. So this together results in elevated blood pressure and more constricted blood vessels. Hyperinsulinemia also activates a hormonal system called the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which leads to salt retention and increased blood pressure too. And these reasons are why elevated blood pressure is another hallmark of metabolic syndrome. So this dysregulated glucose and lipid metabolism, in addition to systemic inflammation, also eventually leads to damage to the large and small arteries, explaining why we see increased rates of heart attack, stroke, and things of that nature. This damage to the arteries is categorized by the size of the artery, macrovascular damage or microvascular damage, big vessels and small vessels. First, we'll talk about macrovascular damage. In these large arteries, the increased inflammation and um, the processes that are going on eventually lead to plaques um, developing in the artery wall. These plaques start to grow, they restrict blood flow, they can rupture and cause blockages in the arteries in places such as the heart and brain that lead to strokes and heart attacks. And the same thing can happen in the legs that then leads to peripheral artery disease. And then we can talk about what happens in those small blood vessels, the microvascular complications. So 
Exposure of these small arteries to high levels of blood sugar, oxidative stress, and other inflammatory compounds eventually leads to decreased blood flow to the eyes, which can lead to blindness, to the kidneys, which eventually leads to kidney failure and maybe the need for dialysis, and to the nerves, which can lead to impotence and diabetic foot disorders, which include severe infections, maybe eventually even leading to amputations. Yikes. Yeah. So the gut microbiome, we also know, is emerging as a very important player in the development of systemic inflammation and metabolic dysfunction, and is also strongly affected by the things we do, the lifestyle factors, the food that we eat, stress, sleep, and exercise. So that's something to keep in mind, too. Okay, let's take a deep breath. (laughs) (sighs) That was a lot of information. Um, So feel free to rewind, read the blog post um, to go over it again. But, you know, it really highlights what we just talked about, really highlights how everything's connected. Mm -hmm. Demonstrates the body is a beautiful ecosystem and it's not a collection of individual organ systems as we often think. So now that we've covered what metabolic dysfunction is and how it progresses from a silent process to life-threatening disease, now let's talk about how to assess whether somebody is metabolically healthy. Yeah. So we're going to go through a number of different measures, a number of different windows that you can look through, like Danny's analogy earlier. And one of those is body composition. Now, because lean muscle and organ tissue and fat tissue act very differently, it's important to assess the presence of each. And there are different ways to estimate body composition and the presence of fat mass. Each of those have their own strengths and limitations. Now, BMI is one of the most frequently used. And essentially, BMI is weight divided by height squared. So weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared. And there are BMI calculators that you can find easily to do this calculation if you know your weight and your height. Now, the advantage of BMI is that there are extensive national reference databases that are used to establish the relationship between certain BMIs and certain percentages of body fat and also certain BMIs and the associated increased risk of illness and early death. So we know that in adults, a BMI level of above 25 is associated with an increased risk and is considered overweight. And a BMI level of above 30 indicates obesity and is associated with an even higher risk. Now, we have to use caution with BMI, though, because it does not distinguish between fat mass and muscle mass. So if you have a well-muscled athlete, they may have a a higher BMI, but not carry the same associated increased risk as someone with the same weight, but more fat mass. So we talked about BMI. Let's talk about another metric for body composition. That's abdominal circumference. And this is one of the criteria for uh, metabolic syndrome, where your waist measurement is, need, needs to be greater than 35 inches for women and greater than 40 inches for men. So remember that fat deposit in the abdomen seems to be more inflammatory and more closely associated with the development of metabolic disease than fat deposit elsewhere, fat called subcutaneous fat, the fat that's in our arms, legs, and hips. Abdominal circumference is often also referred to as waist circumference um, because the measurement is taken um, as the circumference around the abdomen at the level of the hip bones, uh, what is called the iliac crest. Now, we can also do a ratio of this abdominal or waist circumference to the circumference at the hips, which is a little bit lower. And this is called a waist to hip ratio, which also provides an estimate of increased metabolic risk. Now, most men with a ratio of greater than one and women with a ratio of greater than 0.85 are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and even cancers. And some would argue that these abdominal measurements are better discriminators of cardiovascular risk than BMI. And that's, again, probably due to the fact that we have this increased association of visceral or abdominal fat with metabolic disease than subcutaneous fat, which is held elsewhere in the body. So subcutaneous. 
on the point of subcutaneous fat, so skinfold measurements with calipers are also commonly used. And these are not great measurements because they're looking at subcutaneous fat rather mm-hmm. than visceral abdominal fat, which is why we're more, which is really what we're more interested in when looking at metabolic risk. Now, all these measurements discussed so far have the advantage that they're very easy to obtain. So all you really need is a measuring tape and maybe a scale. They're good crude ways to estimate the total body and abdominal fat, which is known to be associated with that increased metabolic risk. But in order to really assess total body fat, there are more advanced imaging methods that can be used. And the next few methods that we're going to talk about are used to estimate percentages of body weight comprised of fat mass versus lean mass, which would be our muscles and our organs. And in some cases where that fat mass is distributed in the body, whether it's in that abdominal visceral area or more peripheral. Now, the NHANES survey, which we've talked about on the podcast before, it's the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey that was conducted in the early 2000s, compared in a large population body fat percentage cutoffs to BMI cutoffs. And they helped to identify body fat percent cutoffs that were associated with increased metabolic risk. Now, these are different based on age, sex, and race, so it's difficult to generalize what body fat percent is considered quote-unquote normal without knowing the individual's background. But in general, if we look on average for men, a body fat percent above about 25% is associated with the same risk of of having a BMI of 25 or being overweight. And in men, a body fat percent above 30% is associated with the same risk of having a BMI of 30 or being obese. Now, in women, these numbers are a little bit higher. So body fat above 38% is associated with the same risk of having a BMI of 25. And a body fat of 42% is associated with the same risk of having a BMI of 30 or being obese. Let's talk about bioimpedance analysis. So this is where bio, uh, where a small current is passed through the body as a conductor. And then it estimates the total body water, fat-free mass, and uh, fat mass. Um, these devices you see... Um, in a lot of different gyms, it's where you step on a scale and you hold on to handles and you get a measurement. Um, InBody is a po- very popular machine that you see in a lot of places. Overall, this gives you a better idea of your fat-free mass, which is your muscles and organs, and then your fat mass. We can also look at body density. There's a couple common ways to measure this. The first is called hydrodensometry, commonly called underwater weighing. It's a pretty accurate way of measuring body fat percentage. And then we also have air displacement plethysmography. Nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I said that right. Um, Which uses the displacement of air instead of water to measure the body's density. So this would be devices such as a bod pod, which you may have heard of before. Um, Often this is preferred by most people, obviously, because you don't have to get wet, but it does result in higher mean percent body fat than underwater weighing. DEXA scan is another way that uh, DEXA scan stands for dual energy X-ray absorptiometry. We're nailing these words. Know, they're tough saying. ones. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the most popular method for quanti- quantifying fat, lean, and bone tissues. It uses two separate low energy X-rays to assess these tissues, and it's relatively cheap and a convenient way to assess body composition. It's actually what was used to collect the data for the NHANES study, which we've referenced. Def, uh, definitely DEXA has been thought of as a gold standard, um, but a recent study comparing DEXA, BODPOD, um, the in-body bioimpedance analysis machine showed that they're pretty comparable, um, although the BODPOD and the in-body underestimated body fat percentage compared to the DEXA. So there is utility in using these other um, methodologies, but know that the DEXA tends to be a little bit more accurate. All right. So those were a lot of different ways to assess body fat and particularly the burden of that abdominal or visceral fat. Some of them obviously were easier to obtain than others. Others more complicated. They're all methods that can be used. 
Now, our next measure, the next window that we're going to look in is blood pressure. So a blood pressure, again, remember of greater than 130 over 85 or being on a medication to treat high blood pressure was a criteria for metabolic syndrome. But we know that there's increased cardiovascular risk even at lower blood pressures than that. So normal or optimal blood pressure is considered less than 120 in that top number or the systolic blood pressure and less than 80 um, on the bottom or that diastolic blood pressure. And we previously discussed how that's normal or optimal. Now, if we get a little bit higher than that, it's considered elevated blood pressure in the range of 120 to 129 systolic over less than 80 diastolic. Stage one hypertension or stage one elevated blood pressure is 130 to 139 systolic over 80 to 89 diastolic. And hypertension stage two is greater than or equal to 140 systolic over greater than or equal to 90 diastolic. Now, the risk for cardiovascular disease increases in a logarithmic fashion with blood pressure. We know that a 20-point increase in systolic blood pressure and a 10-point increase in diastolic blood pressure are each associated with a doubling in the risk of death from stroke, heart disease, or other vascular diseases, which is really quite a big increase in risk. And people that are 30 years of age or older, higher blood pressures are associated with increased risk for cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, heart failure, stroke, peripheral artery disease, and aneurysms. Next, let's talk about glucose and insulin. And we can argue that this is perhaps the primary driver for a lot of these issues. There are three primary ways which we measure it in practice. The first one is fasting blood sugar. This is where your blood sugar is measured after an 8 to 12-hour fast. Um, Normal is less than 100 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Pre-diabetes or insulin resistance is classified as between 100 and 125. And then diabetes equal to or greater than 126. You might have heard of something called a hemoglobin A1C. This is where we measure uh, your blood sugar over the last three months, and it uses red blood cells. And here's the idea behind it. Red blood cells live for about three months, and as they float around, they pick up blood sugar and blood sugar sticks to them. And we can measure the amount of sugar that sticks to these cells through a measurement called hemoglobin A1C, and that's what gives us the average blood sugar over the last three months. So normal is considered less than 5.7%. Pre-diabetes or insulin resistant is considered between 5.7 and 6.4%, and then diabetes considered greater than 6.5%. But keep in mind that if you were to obtain a single measurement of a hemoglobin A1C, that's not diagnostic for diabetes. If it's above 6.5, it needs to be confirmed by another measurement too. The other uh, popular method for checking for insulin resistance and diabetes is a two-hour glucose tolerance test. Um, It's where a patient gets a blood draw first, initially fasting to get a baseline. Then a patient drinks 75 grams of glucose and their blood sugar is checked one and then two hours later. And this tells you how good the body is at storing or removing blood sugar um, that they just consumed. It's a little bit artificial for most people um, because most people don't drink 75 grams of sugar without any fiber or other Although I don't know, you know, those big gulps are really popular these <laughs> days. True. So I guess there's a lot of people doing two-hour glucose tolerance tests out there. <laughs> that being said, so if your blood sugar is greater than um, 140 to 199 um, within that first hour at the one-hour point, rather, then that's considered uh, pre-diabetes. Um, if at two hours your blood sugar is greater than 199, that's considered diabetes. And now we're running through tons of numbers here. So remember, you can always check back to the blog post associated with this podcast episode, and we have it all written out for if you if you want to reference it in the future. Now, also remember that we discussed earlier, a hallmark for type 2 diabetes is a decline in that beta cell function. And 
That has been shown to begin as early as 12 years before the diagnosis of diabetes, and it continues throughout this disease process. So as we talked about before, insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia can be occurring for many years before the blood sugar or the A1C start to look abnormal. And one way that we can assess for hyperinsulinemia is by using an oral glucose tolerance test in which we measure glucose, what Danny just described, but we also measure insulin at those time points, fasting one hour and two hour. And that can sometimes give us an idea if this hyperinsulinemia process is already beginning. Now, what about measuring lipids or cholesterol? Remember that elevations in triglycerides and a low HDL are criteria for metabolic syndrome. And to remind you, triglycerides greater than 150 and HDL less than 50 in women and less than 40 in men is considered um, one of the criteria. We can use a ratio of those two numbers, it's called the triglyceride to HDL ratio, as a marker for insulin resistance. And one study suggested that a ratio of greater than 2.72, yeah, 2.75 in men and greater than 1.65 in women is highly predictive of metabolic syndrome. Now, these markers are gathered from a traditional lipid panel that your doctor may order, which will include a total cholesterol and HDL and LDL and also triglycerides. And there are also more advanced lipid measurements, which look at particle size and things called lipoproteins. So ApoB with a level of greater than or equal to 130 milligrams per deciliter, we know is associated with increased cardiovascular risk. Same thing with LP little a greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter. We talked about some of these things in our previous Pursuing Health Pearls episode number 140 on the podcast, where we covered cholesterol and statins in more detail. So that might be one to revisit if you're interested in this topic. So we've talked about how metabolic syndrome is associated with chronic low-grade inflammation already, but it's elevation in these inflammatory markers that can be helpful in a lot of situations, but there aren't really many that are used clinically. However, there is one, which is high-sensitivity CRP. Um, and this is a marker that, um, if it's elevated, um, increases your risk for future cardiovascular disease and death independent of other cardiovascular risk factors. We also touched on this briefly in our Cholesterol Pearls episode a little while back, where we said that a HSCRP greater than or equal to 2 was associated with increased cardiovascular risk and was considered a cardiovascular risk enhancer. All right. So now we've talked about how metabolic dysfunction occurs and how to detect signs of metabolic dysfunction in order to intervene early. Reversing metabolic dysfunction is possible by focusing on healthy lifestyle factors, which we're going to discuss here and which we discuss all the time. I know. We always close an episode with this because it is just so important to mention. Um, You know, when we give our body what it needs, it can really come back into balance. So the first thing we'll, we'll talk about is nutrition, focusing on a nutrient-rich diet, um, focusing on whole foods and low carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates and sugar being absent from the diet is important. And it's really important to note too that when someone has metabolic dysfunction, they may not be able to tolerate as much carbohydrate, right? If you're trying right. to reverse metabolic dysfunction, you may have to really cut down on the amount of carbohydrate because the body just can't handle it. Versus someone who's very metabolically healthy can handle more about more carbohydrate because their body's able to process that appropriately. Absolutely. It's that whole concept of, of metabolic flexibility. Now, getting enough regular exercise is important too. Of course, high-intensity exercise is great, and it really helps um, improve insulin sensitivity. Reducing and learning how to manage the physical impacts of stress are important. We've talked about that on past podcasts before. (laughs) Also, getting enough sleep and getting good quality sleep is critical. That we'll talk about in a future episode, which we're very excited about. Yeah, and you know, a lot of times when metabolic syndrome is discussed, the focus really goes to weight loss. And 
weight loss, it has been shown that a sustained weight loss greater than 10% of body weight has been shown to be enough to reverse glucose intolerance, high blood pressure, and several of these lipid abnormalities. But we really don't like to focus on weight because we consider weight to be just another symptom of this dysfunction. So think about it like your high blood pressure or your high cholesterol is just another symptom. It's just another door that you're looking through in the house to tell you what's going on. But if we can address that root cause by changing some of these lifestyle factors that we just talked about, we give our body the right ingredients to create health and often we see weight loss happen as a result. Right. So we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, we gave you an overview of metabolic health and how most chronic diseases, most chronic disease is really being driven by the same underlying process of metabolic dysfunction. Metabolic dysfunction is characterized by abnormal glucose and lipid metabolism and chronic systemic inflammation. And there is no one test in order to assess metabolic dysfunction, but looking at many different symptoms and biomarkers can identify early signs of metabolic dysfunction, such as glucose and insulin regulation, body composition, blood pressure, lipids, and systemic inflammatory markers like high-sensitivity CRP. And at the end of the day, the goal is really to detect metabolic dysfunction early and then to make adjustments to lifestyle factors like your diet, your exercise, sleep, and stress in order to reverse the process before it manifests as a chronic disease like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, or a life-altering complication like kidney failure or blindness or limb amputation or even death from something like a stroke or a heart attack. So we hope this gave you a better understanding of what metabolic dysfunction means and how it develops and how it can be detected. We also hope this provides some more context for our previous episode on COVID-19 and our health, where we outline the increased risk of those with metabolic dysfunction in developing severe illness from COVID-19. So that's all we've got for this edition. Thanks again for tuning in. But before we go, we wanted to leave you with a quick reminder. We're committed to not having sponsors on the podcast. Super important to us. Yes. Super, super, super important. important. So we want to be as unbiased as possible. And the only way that we can do that is um, by getting your support. Yeah. The only way that we can keep doing what we do is with your support. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other podcast episodes and would like to show your appreciation, you can head over to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber for as little as $4.99 per month. Now, I know I've been known to spend more than that on a latte every week, maybe <laughs> even multiple times Perhaps. per week. <laughs> so not only will you support what we're doing, but you'll also get access to our workout programs, exclusive discount codes, a live Q&A session that we do monthly for our subscribers too. So again, we really appreciate it. Please head over to pursuing-health.com slash subscribe to show your support. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health Pearls. Bye, guys. 